Chapter 17b of the Book of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee. The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 17b. In Finley's Reports on the Character of 600 Tornadoes, very suggestive bits of description occur. Cloud bounded along the earth like a ball. Or that it was no meteorological phenomenon, but something very much like a huge, solid ball that was bounding along, crushing and carrying with it everything within its field. Cloud bounded along, coming to the earth every 800 or 1,000 yards. Here's an interesting bit that I got somewhere else. I offer it as a datum in superbiology, which, however, is a branch of advanced science that I'll not take up, restricting to things indefinitely called objects. The tornado came wriggling, jumping, whirling like a great green snake, darting out a score of glistening fangs. Though it's interesting, I think that's sensational myself. It may be that vast green snakes sometimes rush past this earth, taking a swift bite wherever they can. But as I say, that's a super-biologic phenomenon. Finley gives dozens of instances of tornado clouds that seem to be more like solid things, swathed in clouds, than clouds. He notes that in the tornado at Americus, Georgia, July 18, 1881, a strange sulfurous vapor was emitted from the cloud. In many instances, objects or meteoritic stones that have come from this Earth's externality have had a sulfurous odor. Why a wind effect should be sulfurous is not clear. That a vast object from external regions should be sulfurous is in line with many data. This phenomenon is described in the Monthly Weather Review, July 1881, as a strange sulfurous vapor burning and sickening all who approached close enough to breathe it. The conventional explanation of tornadoes as wind effects, which we do not deny in some instances, is so strong in the United States that it is better to look elsewhere for an account of an object that has hurtled through this Earth's atmosphere, rising and falling and defying this Earth's gravitation. Nature, 7-112 That, according to a correspondent to the Birmingham Morning News, the people living near King's Sutton, Banbury, saw, about 1 o'clock, December 7, 1872, something like a haycock, hurtling through the air. Like a meteor, it was accompanied by fire and a dense smoke, and made a noise like that of a railway train. It was sometimes high in the air, and sometimes near the ground. The effect was tornado-like. Trees and walls were knocked down. It's a late day now to try to verify this story, but a list is given of persons whose property was injured. We are told that this thing then disappeared all at once. These are the smaller objects, which may be derailed railway trains 
or big green snakes, for all I know, but our expression upon approach to this earth by vast dark bodies, that likely they'd be made luminous, would envelop in clouds, perhaps, or would have their own clouds, but that they'd quake, and that they'd affect this earth with quakes, and that then would occur a fall of matter from such a world, or rise of matter from this earth to a nearby world, or both fall and rise, or exchange of matter, process known to advanced seismology as celestio-metathesis. Except that, if matter from some other world, and it would be like someone to get it into his head that we absolutely deny gravitation, just because we cannot accept orthodox dogmas, except that, if matter from another world, filling the sky of this earth generally, as to a hemisphere, or locally, should be attracted to this earth, it would seem thinkable that the whole thing should drop here, and not merely its surface materials. Objects upon a ship's bottom. From time to time they drop to the bottom of the ocean. The ship does not. Or, like our acceptance upon dripping from aerial ice fields, we think of only a part of a nearby world succumbing, except in being caught in suspension to this Earth's gra gravitation and surface materials falling from that part. Explain or express or accept. And what does it matter? Our attitude is, here are the data. See for yourself. What does it matter what my notions may be? Here are the data. But think for yourself, or think for myself. All mixed up we must be. A long time must go by before we can know Florida from Long Island. So we've had data of fishes that have fallen from our now established and respectabilized Super Sargasso Sea, which we've almost forgotten. It's now so respectable. But we shall have data of fishes that have fallen during earthquakes. These, we accept, were dragged down from ponds or other worlds that have been quaked when only a few miles away by this earth some other world also quaking this earth. In a way, or in its principle, our subject is orthodox enough. Only grant proximity of other worlds, which, however, will not be a matter of granting, but will be a matter of data, and one conventionally conceives of their surfaces quaked, even of a whole lake full of fishes being quaked and dragged down from one of them. The lake full of fishes may cause a little pain to some minds, but the fall of sand and stones is pleasantly enough thought of. More scientific persons, or more faithful hypnotics than we, have taken up this subject unpainfully relatively to the moon. For instance, Perry has gone over 15,000 records of earthquakes, and he has correlated many with proximities of the moon, 
or has attributed many to the pull of the moon when nearest to this earth. Also, there is a paper upon this subject in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Cornwall, 1845. Or, theoretically, when at its closest to this earth, the moon quakes the face of this earth, and is itself quaked, but does not itself fall to this earth. As to showers of matter that may have come from the moon at such times, one can go over old records and find what one pleases. That is what we now shall do. Our expressions are for acceptance only. Our data. We take them from four classes of phenomena that have preceded or accompanied earthquakes. Unusual clouds, darkness profound, luminous appearances in the sky, and falls of substances and objects, whether commonly called meteoric or not. Not one of these occurrences fits in with principles of primitive or primary seismology, and every one of them is a datum of a quaked body passing close to this earth or suspended over it. To the primitives, there is not a reason in the world why a convulsion of this earth's surface should be accompanied by unusual sights in the sky, by darkness, or by the fall of substances or objects from the sky. As to phenomena like these, or storms, preceding earthquakes, the irreconcilability is still greater. It was before 1860 that Perry made his great compilation. We take most of our data from lists compi compiled long ago. Only the safe and unpainful have been published in recent years, at least in ambitious, voluminous form. The restraining hand of the system, as we call it, whether it has any real existence or not, is tight upon the sciences of today. The uncanniest aspect of our quasi-existence that I know of is that everything that seems to have one identity has also as high a seeming of everything else. In this oneness of allness, or continuity, the protecting hand strangles, the parental stifles. Love is inseparable from phenomena of hate. There is only continuity, that is, in quasi-existence. Nature, at least in its correspondence columns, still evades this protective strangulation, and the monthly weather review is still a rich field of unfaithful observation. But in looking over other long-established periodicals, I have noted their glimmers of quasi-individuality fade gradually. After about 1860, and the surrender of their attempted identities to a higher attempted organization, some of them expressing intermediateness-wide endeavor to localize the universal, or to localize self, soul, identity, entity, or positiveness, or realness, held out until as far as 1880, traces findable up to 1890, and then expressing the universal process, except that here and there in the world's history, 
there may have been successful approximations to positiveness by individuals who only then became individuals and attained to selves or souls of their own, surrendered, submitted, became parts of a higher organization's attempt to individualize or systematize into a complete thing, or to localize the universal or the attributes of the universal. After the death of Richard Proctor, whose occasional illiberalities I'd not like to emphasize too much, all succeeding volumes of knowledge have yielded scarcely an unconventionality. Note the great number of times that the American Journal of Science and the Report of the British Association are quoted. Note that after, say, 1885, they're scarcely mentioned in these inspired but illicit pages, as by hypnosis and inertia we keep on saying. About 1880. Throttle and disregard. But the coercion could not be positive, and many of the excommunicated continued to creep in, or, even to this day, some of the strangled are faintly breathing. Some of our data have been hard to find. We could tell stories of great labor and fruitless quests that would, though perhaps imperceptibly, stir the sympathy of a Mr. Simons. But in this matter of concurrence of earthquakes with aerial phenomena, which are as unassociable with earthquakes, if internally caused, as falls of sand on convulsed small boys full of sour apples, the abundance of so-called evidence is so great that we can only sketchily go over the data, beginning with Robert Mallet's catalog, Report of the British Association, 1852, omitting some extraordinary instances because they occurred before the 18th century. Earthquake preceded by a violent tempest, England, January 8, 1704. Preceded by a brilliant meteor, Switzerland, November 4, 1704. Luminous cloud moving at high velocity, disappearing behind the horizon. Florence, December 9, 1731. Thick mists in the air, through which a dim light was seen, several weeks before the shock, globes of light had been seen in the air. Swabia, May 22, 1732. Rain of Earth, Carpentras, France. October 18, 1737. A black cloud, London, March 19, 1750. Violent storm and a strange star of octagonal shape. Slavange, Norway, April 15, 1752. Balls of fire from a streak in the sky. Augermanland. 1752. Numerous meteorites. Lisbon, October 15, 1755. 
terrible tempests over and over, falls of hail and brilliant meteors, instance after instance, an immense globe, Switzerland, November 2nd, 1761. Oblong, sulfurous cloud, Germany, April 1767. Extraordinary mass of vapor, Boulon, April 1780. Heavens obscured by a dark mist, Grenada, August 7, 1804. Strange howling noises in the air and large spots obscuring the sun. Palermo, Italy, April 16, 1817. Luminous meteor moving in the same direction as the shock. Naples, November 22, 1821. Fireball appearing in the sky, apparent size of the moon. Thuringerwald, November 29, 1831. And, unless you be polarized by the new dominant, which is calling for recognition of multiplicities of external things as a dominant, dawning new over Europe in 1492, called for recognition of terrestrial externality to Europe. Unless you have this contact with the new, you have no affinity for these data. Beans that drop from a magnet. Irreconcilables that glide from the mind of a Thompson. Or my own acceptance that we do not really think at all. That we correlate around supermagnets that I call dominance. A spiritual dominant in one age. And responsively to it upspring monasteries. And the stake and the cross are its symbols. A materialist dominant, and upspring laboratories, and microscopes, and telescopes, and crucibles are its icons, that were nothing but iron filings relatively to a succession of magnets that displace preceding magnets. With no soul of your own, and with no soul of my own, except that some day some of us may no longer be intermediatisms, but may hold out against the cosmos that once upon a time thousands of fishes were cast from one pail of water. We have psychovalency for these data. If we're obedient slaves to the new dominant, and repulsion to them, if we're mere correlates to the old dominant. I'm a soulless and selfless correlate to the new dominant, myself. I see what I have to see. The only inducement I can hold out in my attempt to rake up disciples is that someday the new will be fashionable. The new correlates will sneer at the old correlates. After all, there is some inducement to that. And I'm not altogether sure it's desirable to end up as a fixed star. As a correlate to the new dominant, I am very much impressed with some of these data. The luminous object that moved in the same direction as an earthquake. It seems very acceptable that a quake followed this thing as it passed near this earth's surface. The streak that was seen in the sky. 
or only a streak that was visible of another world. And objects or meteorites that were shaken down from it. The quake at Carpentras, France, and that above Carpentras was a smaller world, more violently quaked, so that Earth was shaken down from it. But I like best the super wolves that were seen to cross the sun during the earthquake at Palermo. They howled. Or the loves of the worlds. The call they feel for one another. They try to move closer and howl when they get there. The howls of the planets. I have discovered a new unintelligibility. In the Edinburgh New Philosophical Journal, have to go away back to 1841, days of less efficient strangulation, Sir David Milne lists phenomena of quakes in Great Britain. I pick out a few that indicate to me that other worlds were near this Earth's surface. Violent storm before a shock of 1703. Ball of fire preceding. 1750. A large ball of fire seen upon day following a quake. 1755. Uncommon phenomenon in the air. A large luminous body bent like a crescent which stretched itself over the heavens. 1816. Vast ball of fire. 1750. Black rains and black snows, 1755. Numerous instances of upward projection or upward attraction during quakes, preceded by a cloud, very black and lowering, 1795. Fall of black powder, preceding a quake by six hours, 1837. Some of these instances seem to me to be very striking. A smaller world, it is greatly racked by the attraction of this earth. Black substance is torn down from it. Not until six hours later, after an approach still closer, does this earth suffer perturbation. As to the extraordinary spectacle of a thing, world, superconstruction, that was seen in the sky in 1816, I have not yet been able to find out more. I think that here our acceptance is relatively sound, that this occurrence was tremendously of more importance than such occurrence as, say, transits of Venus, upon which hundreds of papers have been written, that not another mention have I found, though I have not looked so especially as I shall look for more data, that all but undetailed record of this occurrence was suppressed. Altogether, we have considerable agreement here between data of vast masses that do not fall to this earth, but from which substances fall, and data of fields of ice, from which ice may not fall off, but from which water may drip. I'm beginning to modify that, at a distance from this earth, Gravitation has more effect than we have supposed, though less effect than the dogmatists suppose and prove. 
I'm coming out stronger for the acceptance of a neutral zone. That this earth, like other magnets, has a neutral zone, in which is the Super Sargasso Sea, and in which other worlds may be buoyed up, though projecting parts may be subject to this earth's attraction. But my preference... Here are the data. I now have one of the most interesting of the new correlates. I think I should have brought it in before, but whether out of place here, because not accompanied by earthquake or not, we'll have it. I offer it as an instance of an eclipse by a vast dark body that has been seen and reported by an astronomer. The astronomer is M. Lias. The phenomenon was seen by him at Pernambuco, April 11, 1860. Comps Rendu, 50, 1197. It was about noon, sky cloudless. Suddenly the light of the sun was diminished. The darkness increased, and, to illustrate its intensity, we are told that the planet Venus shone brilliant. But Venus was of low visibility at this time. The observation that burns incense to the new dominant is that around the sun appeared a corona. There are many other instances that indicate proximity of other worlds during earthquakes. I note a few. Quake and an object in the sky, called a large luminous meteor. Quarterly Journal, Royal Institute, 5-132. Luminous body in the sky, earthquake and fall of sand, Italy, February 12th and 13th, 1870. La Science Portu, 15-159. Many reports upon luminous object in the sky and earthquake, Connecticut, February 27, 1883. Monthly Weather Review, February 1883. Luminous object or meteor in the sky. Fall of stones from the sky. And earthquake. Italy, January 20, 1891. L'Astronomie. 1891-154. Earthquake and prodigious number of luminous bodies or globes in the air. Boulogne, France, June 7, 1779. Cestier, La Foudre, 1-169. Earthquake at Manila, 1863, and curious luminous appearance in the sky. Ponton. Earthquakes, page 124. The most notable appearance of fishes during an earthquake is that of Rio Bamba. Humboldt sketched one of them, and it's an uncanny-looking thing. Thousands of them appeared on the ground during this tremendous earthquake. Humboldt says that they were cast up from subterranean sources. I think not myself and have data for thinking not. But there'd be such a row 
arguing back and forth that it's simpler to consider a clearer instance of the fall of living fishes from the sky during an earthquake. I can't quite accept myself whether a large lake and all the fishes in it was torn down from some other world or a lake in the Super Sargasso Sea distracted between two pulling worlds was dragged down to this earth. Here are the data. La Science Pour Tout, 6191. February 16, 1861. An earthquake at Singapore. Then came an extraordinary downpour of rain, or as much water as any good-sized lake would consist of. For three days this rain, or this fall of water, came down in torrents. In pools on the ground, formed by this deluge, great numbers of fishes were found. The writer says that he had himself seen nothing but water fall from the sky. Whether I'm emphasizing what a deluge it was or not, he says that so terrific had been the downpour that he had not been able to see three steps away from him. The natives said that the fishes had fallen from the sky. Three days later the pools dried up and many dead fishes were found. But in the first place though that's an expression for which we have an instinctive dislike, the fishes had been active and uninjured. Then follows material for another of our little studies in the phenomena of disregard. A psychotropism here is mechanically to take pen in hand and mechanically write that fishes found on the ground after a heavy rainfall came from overflowing streams. The writer of the account says that some of the fishes had been found in his courtyard, which was surrounded by high walls, paying no attention to this, a correspondent, La Science Pour Tout, 6317, explains that in the heavy rain a body of water had probably overflowed, carrying fishes with it. We are told by the first writer that these fishes of Singapore were of a species that was very abundant near Singapore. So, I think myself that a whole lake full of them had been shaken down from the Super Sargasso Sea under the circumstances we have thought of. However, if appearance of strange fishes after an earthquake be more pleasing in the sight or to the nostrils of the new dominant, we faithfully and piously supply that incense. An account of the occurrence at Singapore was read by M. De Castelnau before the French Academy. M. de Castelnau recalled that upon a former occasion he had submitted to the Academy the circumstance that fishes of a new species had appeared at the Cape of Good Hope after an earthquake. It seems proper and it will give luster to the new orthodoxy, now to have an instance in which not merely quake and fall of rocks or meteorites, or quake and either eclipse or luminous appearances in the sky have occurred, but in which are combined all the phenomena, one or more of which, when accompanying earthquake, indicate, in our acceptance, the proximity of another world. This time a longer duration is indicated than in other instances. In the Canadian Institute Proceedings 27198, 
There is an account by the deputy commissioner at Dhurmsala of the extraordinary Dhurmsala meteorite, coated with ice. But the combination of events related by him is still more extraordinary. That within a few months of the fall of this meteorite, there had been a fall of live fishes at Benares, a shower of red substance at Furuk Abad, a dark spot observed on the disk of the sun, an earthquake, an unnatural darkness of some duration, and a luminous appearance in the sky that looked like an aurora borealis. But there's more to this climax. We are introduced to a new order of phenomena. Visitors. The deputy commissioner writes that, in the evening, after the fall of the Dhurmsala meteorite, or mass of stone covered with ice, he saw lights. Some of them were not very high. They appeared and went out and reappeared. I have read many accounts of the Dhurmsala meteorite, July 28, 1860, but never in any other of them a mention of this new correlate. Something as out of place in the 19th century as would have been an aeroplane, the invention of which would not, in our acceptance, have been permitted in the 19th century, though adumbrations to it were permitted. This writer says that the lights moved like fire balloons, but I am sure that they were neither fire balloons, lanterns, nor bonfires, or any other thing of that sort, but bona fide lights in the heavens. It's a subject for which we shall have to have a separate expression. Trespassers upon territory to which something else has a legal right. Perhaps someone lost a rock, and he and his friends came down looking for it in the evening, or secret agents or emissaries who had an appointment with certain esoteric ones near Dhurmsala, things or beings coming down to explore and unable to stay down long. In a way, another strange occurrence during an earthquake is suggested. The ancient Chinese tradition, the marks like hoof marks in the ground. We have thought, with a low degree of acceptance, of another world that may be in secret communication with certain esoteric ones of this earth's inhabitants, and of messages in symbols like hoof marks that are sent to some receptor or special hill upon this earth, and of messages that at times miscarry. This other world comes close to this world. There are quakes, but advantage of proximity is taken to send a message. The message, designed for a receptor in India, perhaps, or in Central Europe, miscarries all the way to England. Marks, like the marks of the Chinese tradition, are found upon a beach in Cornwall after an earthquake. Philosophical Transactions, 5500 After the quake of July 15, 1757, upon the sands of Penzance, Cornwall, in an area of more than 100 square yards, were found marks like hoof prints, except that they were not crescentic. We feel a similarity, 
but note an arbitrary disregard of our own, this time. It seems to us that Marx described as little cones surrounded by basins of equal diameter would be like hoof prints, if hoofs printed complete circles. Other disregards are that there were black specks on the tops of cones, as if something perhaps gaseous had issued from them, that from one of these formations came a gush of water as thick as a man's wrist. Of course, the opening of springs is common in earthquakes, but we suspect, myself, that the negative absolute is compelling us to put in this datum and its disorders. There's another matter in which the negative absolute seems to work against us. Though to superchemistry we have introduced the principle of celestio-metathesis. We have no good data of exchange of substances during proximities. The data are all of falls and not of upward translations. Of course, upward impulses are common during earthquakes, but I haven't a datum upon a tree or a fish or a brick or a man that ever did go up and stay up, and that never did come down again. Our classic of the horse and barn occurred in what was called a whirlwind. It is said that in an earthquake in Calabria, paving stones shot up far in the air. The writer doesn't specifically say that they came down again, but something seems to tell me they did. The Corpses of Riobamba Humboldt reported that in the quake of Riobamba, bodies were torn upward from graves, that the vertical motion was so strong that bodies were tossed several hundred feet in the air. I explain. I explain that if, in the center of greatest violence of an earthquake, anything ever has gone up and has kept on going up, the thoughts of the nearest observers were very likely upon other subjects. The key of Lisbon. We are told that it went down. A vast throng of persons ran to the key for refuge. The city of Lisbon was in profound darkness. The key and all the people on it disappeared. If it and they went down, not a single corpse, not a shred of clothing, not a plank of the key, nor so much as a splinter of it, ever floated to the surface. End of chapter 17 Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago, gis.depaul.edu slash pmcafee